We'll hear argument now in case number, it's a long number, 121-CV-112358, O'Neill versus Halland. Appellant's counsel, Mr. Baldacci. Before we begin, Your Honor, may we as the appellants reserve two minutes of our time for rebuttal at the end of argument? Sure. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, 14 minutes, 14 minutes, and then the two reserved. Thank you. May it please, please the court. Proceed. Thank you, Your Honors. Good afternoon. My name is Christopher Baldacci, and I, along with my co-counsel, Mr. Michael Patton, represent the appellant, Secretary Holland. I will argue for the constitutionality of ICWA, and Mr. Patton will deal with the nationwide injunction issue. Your Honor, Section 1915A3 of the Indian Child Welfare Act is a constitutional exercise of Congress's long-recognized power to regulate the federal Indian tribes. We therefore ask for you to reverse the district court on the merits and hold Section 1915 constitutional under the Fifth Amendment. We ask this for two reasons. First, ICWA gives a preference for families of a particular tribal affiliation, not a particular race. And second, classifications based on tribal affiliation are subject to rational basis review for the Supreme Court's binding precedent in Mankari. Your Honor, the district court and the appellee's error begins with its reading of the statute, which they treat as a racial classification, but by its terms- But, but how, its how is it not a racial classification? Because the only counterexample you offered was isolated incidents of the Cherokees adopting some freed slaves in the 1800s. How is it not racial? So it's both under and over-inclusive, Your Honor. You're right that on one side of the line, there are a few instances where members of Indian tribes are not by descent Native American, but they do exist. But on the other side of the line are thousands of families and thousands of Native American individuals in the United States who are not members of federally recognized tribes, either because their tribe isn't recognized by the federal government, it's only recognized by states or communities, or because they have not, don't have an active membership where they've allowed their membership to lapse because of of various tribal rules or they moved so would, on. So would that alone be enough? I mean, in other words, if you've got a sliver of, I'm, I'm not losing sight of which one is over and under, but mm -hmm. let's just say the, the first one is over and the second one is under. If you've got a tiny slitter, sliver of over, which are random kind of happenstance situations, and then you've got some meaningful under, how can, how can that alone be enough? Because it still seems like at least on one end of it, it's acting as a racial criterion as opposed to a uh, political one. Yes, Your Honor. It's enough because the Supreme Court has said so. So in Morton versus Mankari, that statute was uh, exclusively, it dealt with, also dealt with a Native American preference. But that statute had two criteria. In order to qualify as Indian for the hiring preference, you had to be a member of a federally recognized tribe and you had to be at least one quarter Indian blood. So that would exclude people like descendants of the Cherokee freedmen. And it would include anyone who is a member of a federally recognized tribe, but exclude Native Americans in the United States who were not members of federally recognized tribes. And the Supreme Court said, even though that will track race in the group that gets the employment preference, the fact that it excludes thousands of people of the same race means that it's a political classification based on the federal government's relationship to Native but, American but tribes. But what about the decision in, in Rice versus Conteo? Yeah. Because that, to me, seems like the court has walked away a little bit from Mankari and set up a dichotomy where you have um, the hiring preferences on the one hand versus fundamental rights like voting and maybe child rearing as well. 
Yes, Your Honor. So it's first important to recognize that Rice reaffirms Mankari and its progeny. And it doesn't just cite Mankari. It, it states the holding of Mankari that classifications based on tribal affiliation uh, are subject to rational basis review. But Mankari was different in a, two fundamental ways. The first was that the classification was not based on uh, membership in a federally recognized tribe. It was based on pure descendancy from native Hawaiians. But A, the Hawaiians are not a federally recognized tribe. And in this case, ancestry was a pure proxy for race. Do Everyone think, who was a descendant. Do you think that the same rule for, the same rule that was at issue in Rice would be upheld if it were applied to Native American tribes? If the, sorry, Your Honor, if the, stat, if the Hawaii statutes had said members of a federally recognized tribe or if. Right, or whichever, whichever group the rule here is applying to, if the statute that was dealt with in Rice was applied to that group, do you think you get a different result? It would be a substantially different case, Your Honor, if, this, if Native Hawaiians were a federally recognized tribe and it only tracked federal tribal membership as opposed to ancestry and race generally. But furthermore, Your Honor, that, then Rice was a state statute, meaning that it was a state trying to regulate who could vote and who couldn't. And that's different, especially because Mankari gave a long treatment to the federal prerogative and obligation to regulate relations with the federal Indian tribes. And that was part of the reasoning for giving the deferential rational basis standard to a federal regulation versus a state regulation. But do you think that, that's, do you think that, that same principle would extend to something as fundamental as voting? That, that final consideration is, is the other distinguishing factor of Rice, and as Judge Bergeron noted, the distinction not only was based on ancestry as a proxy for race, but the outgroup, so to speak, in Rice lost the fundamental constitutional right to vote. This distinction in this case allows some people to get a preferential adoption placement, and then the outgroup is one step behind them in the adoption placement. Now, this is not to negate the personal interests that individuals have in adopting children, but it's not the same as the fundamental constitutional right to vote, which was lost by the outgroup on a line that was drawn racially in Rice. Neither but, of those. But wouldn't the, the, uh, the parents here lose that same right to raise the child they want to raise based solely on race? So they don't, uh, first of all, as a factual matter, Your Honor, the, they, the, parents, the parents have not lost the right to raise the child. The state, the state proceeding is simply paused to determine whether the Chippewa Cree family has a better uh, adoption placement than the parents that, the O'Neills, which are suing here. But as a legal matter, Your Honor, they're not losing out purely based on race. They're losing out because they are not members of a federally recognized tribe. Even if the O'Neills were 100% Native American by descent or by blood, if they were not members of a federally recognized tribe, they don't get preference. Right, but it's a different tribe, and, and that seems like that's kind of the crux of the matter here, because one distinction with Mankari that seems salient to me is that was about the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It was not about the Bureau of Affairs of the Cherokee tribe. And so you can understand why in that case, the fact that it cut across tribes didn't matter. Whereas here, the justification for the law is that children were being wrested away from tribes. Not that children were being wrested away from Indian households or, non, or tribal households composite to non-tribal households composite, which seems different to me. 
That is a factual difference, Your Honor, but I would at least push back against the idea that there was no consideration on the part of Congress of tribal households versus non-tribal households. Obviously, the statute was passed first and foremost, it says so in Section 1902, to keep Native American children in their tribes of origin. But more generally, if that wasn't possible, like is the case here where there's no one in the tribe who can adopt, Congress at least wanted those children to be raised in homes where their connections to the political communities of Native Americans were kept up. Uh, as Judge Dennis noted in the Fifth Circuit Brackeen decision, it was reasonable for Congress to think that, you know, given the choice of families, it was better for a Native American child to be raised by a family that has kept up its tribal membership and is still an active member of that political community with a respect for its traditions and culture, as opposed to someone who is Native American by blood but had no connection. Right, to but their. that, I mean, I can, that, I, I, I can perceive why that would be a justification for the law. But on whether the law is a racial classification as opposed to a tribal slash political one, I don't know that it gets you far, very far on that score. So I think it's important to distinguish whether it, it's a racial classification and therefore it requires heightened review from the standard of scrutiny to the law. The, this, this argument that the law generalizes tribes could be cast as either one. If, it's, if you're saying that the law is racial because it allows a tribe different from the child's to come in and get preference, that's not on the basis of race, as we've already said, it's on the basis of tribal affiliation, or it's a fact that it is a federally recognized tribe, the family's a member of that tribe, and therefore they get a preference. The Supreme Court has said over and over that there's nothing wrong with giving a preference of any sort to a member based, or to an individual based on the fact that they're a member of a Native American tribe. If the argument is to tailoring and is, and is to say, well, the law is subject to rational basis review, but it's not that rational to give a child to a different tribe, first of all, rational basis review is deferential. But more importantly, that is a reasonable interest on the part of Congress, as you yourself acknowledged, especially because many Native American tribes have overlapping and interlocking relationships. This case is a good example. Even though the Chippewa Cree and the uh, Little River Band of the Ottawa Indians are technically different federal tribes, the Chippewa and Ottawa descend from the same groups of people in southern Canada and northern United States, and members of the two tribes still speak dialects of the same language. But that, but that there's nothing in the law that turns on whether there's an inter interlocking kind of interconnection of the kind that you're it would apply to anybody, right? That's true, Your Honor. But first of all, it's reason it's a under rational basis review, Congress can make over and under inclusive generalizations. Uh, again, as Judge, Judge Dennis noted in Brackeen, the the question is not are there some problematic applications of the law, but rather, in general, is the classification reasonable? And when you ask the question that way, it is reasonable for Congress to think that in many cases, there will be interlocking relationships. And then secondly, even if there are no cultural similarities, the mere fact that an Indian, or that a family is an Indian family under the statute, meaning they're a member of a federally recognized tribe, and if so have that tie to that political community, that if a child grows up in that family, they're more likely to become an active member of their own tribe of origin when they come of age. Doesn't that assume a similarity in community feeling between the tribes that we don't really have any information about? I mean, are we to assume that none of these tribes say were were or are enemies of one another? What if, what if the parents of a child would never want their child to be raised in a neighboring tribe with whom there were historical significant differences? Do we need to assume that tribes are all getting along in order to make the statute work? I don't think so, Your Honor, at least for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
the fact that tribes may historically were opposed to each other may or may not have bearing on whether a child being raised in that family would be raised to have antipathy to their tribe of origin. That's somewhat fact-specific. And second of all, Your Honor, the statute does provide an opt-out for situations in which placement with another Indian family would raise those kind of fact-specific problems. So according to the regulations pursuant to ICWA, 25 CFR 23-132 allows the other Indian families provision to be trumped by good cause. And this includes things like the preference of the parents, the preference of the child, you know, the existence of siblings, uh, the possibility of abuse or extreme emotional or physical distress. So if a family court judge is still allowed to consider good cause in trumping even the other Indian families provision, but again, it's reasonable for Congress to generalize and to say it's better for a child to be raised in an other Indian family as opposed to a non-native family if we want that child to grow up and be a member of their own political community when they come of age. Again, Your so Honors. Can I ask this question? So the, the name of the, the parents who initially thought, the, the prospective parents who initially thought they were going to be able to, to adopt the baby is the O'Neills, right? Yes. And um, if you ask the O'Neills, what's the reason that you're no longer preferred as the prospective parents? Wouldn't, do you think it would be fair for them to say, because we're not Indian? That, that seems fair, Your Honor, but the perception of the parents doesn't seem to change the Supreme Court's analysis, especially given that in every case where the Indian classification, which the Supreme Court eventually upheld, was challenged, it was challenged by non-Indians who felt that they had been discriminated against on the basis of race. A good example, uh, whether, whether the government is distinguishing between federal Indian groups, like in Delaware versus Weeks, or they're discriminating between Indians and non-Indians, like in Mankari. The, 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 the litigants in Mankari felt like they were being discriminated on the basis of being not Indian. But with respect to a, a body that regulated Indians, like, yes. I mean, to, to use the terminology of the day, it was the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and it was dealing with the regulation of that, uh, sec that segment of the population. That is true, Your Honor, but we sh I think this court should not just look at Mankari in a vacuum if that's the, on the court's only statement, albeit unanimous, on the subject of Indian classifications. Three years later in United States versus Antelope, the Supreme Court explicitly acknowledged that even though Mankari dealt with the issue of Indian self-government and the BIA, which is sui generis, to use the court's term, the principle underlying Mankari was that federal regulations of Indian affairs are not based on impermissible classifications. That's because in order for the federal government to effectuate both its constitutional powers and its treaty obligations, it has to be able to distinguish between Indians and non-Indians at the outset of these regulations. The Supreme Court and lower courts have consistently given these laws rational basis review, and this court should do the same. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Baldacci. Uh, Mr. Patton, we'll hear from you. May it please the court. Your Honors, my name is Bolton Smith, and along with my co-counsel, Ms. Abigail Burke, we represent the appellees in this case, the adoptive couple. Your Honors, appellant's challenge to the district court's ruling fails for two principal reasons. First, precedent established in Mankari does not turn the clear racial classification at issue here into a political one. And secondly, the language and purpose of the statute itself undermines any potential political interpretation of other Indian families by treating all Indians as one fungible racial unit instead of separate individual sovereign entities. Turning to the first point, 
It has long been held for the purposes of equal protection that distinctions based on race or ancestry are subject to strict scrutiny. Appellants would like this court to hold that Mankari somehow renders the clear racial classifications of 1915A3 into a political one. Your Honors, it simply does not. Don't, don't American Indians, though, have a special place in both our history and our Constitution and our statutes? Why doesn't that set this group of people apart from others? Yes, Your Honor. We're not saying that Mankari doesn't, doesn't have a role in this or that um, Congress can never give a benefit to Native Americans or especially legislate for them. We're just saying that Mankari is a limited exception bound by historical principles such as you were saying. For, for instance, Mankari uh, cites a, lit lit a litany of cases in which Congress was permissibly allowed to legislate on areas in or around um, reservation areas. And furthermore, Mankari allows for Congress under rational basis to legislate in matters of Indian political and quasi-sovereign affairs. This is because of the unique trust obligation Your Honor was describing. In the history of the United States, the Indians, as a quasi-sovereign entity, used to be able to legislate all these things for themselves and manage their land. But throughout history, the United States government has taken on more and more of these issues. And that is why Mankari carves out a limited interpretive exception for when statutes and regulations fall under these political... So, so how do you draw the distinction between the position you're advocating now and what the appellant says is it will unravel all the benefit programs or, or programs that, that benefit Indians. Your Honors, um, in terms of the appellant's claim that uh, holding for us would unravel all of Title 25 or even ICWA, um, doing so in this case wouldn't do either of those things. Number one, we're not saying that this court should do the impossible and overrule Mankari. We're simply saying that Mankari and his progeny should be held to their, um, their own reasoning and not expanded to new dimensions such as this one. If you look at the cases that followed Mankari, all of them fit into categories dealing with either politics, quasi-sovereignty, or regulation of tribal affairs on tribal land. That's cases such as Holyfield and um, the Chippewa Band of Indians and uh, Washington Fisheries. But what could be more fundamental to tribal sovereignty than being able to raise a tribe's own children? Set, a, set aside the other tribe's issue, but for the first question, what about, what about raising a tribe's own children, keeping those children from being taken from the tribe? Your Honor, we're, we're saying um, in this statute, there are two separate provisions. One is acceptable and one is not. What you're referring to, Your Honor, is 1915A2, which carves out an exception and preference for the child's own tribe to intervene and have a preference over non-Indians or Indians from other tribes. This, Your Honor, fits squarely into what Mankari was talking about. It is a tribe regulating its own membership as a sovereign would. However, contrast that with the issue here, which is A3, which is allowing an, uh, another tribe with no political tie. So what if, what if the first tribe, the tribe of membership, um, discloses its preferences and it says what we would like is for our own tribe but then if that's unavailable we'd prefer a member of another tribe over a non-Indian. Your Honor the difference with that and with what we have in the facial um, issue of A3 is that what Your Honor has described is an exercise of the state's sovereign power. So for instance if the Indian tribe specifically through legislation, an agreement, a treaty had it has um, negotiated with other tribes to send its children there instead of non-Indian families. What if it just announces it? Because I thought the way the statute works is that the first preference is you look to see what the tribe itself wants. Mm -hmm. uh, Your Honor, under the, tr under the statute, the tribe can only switch the order. 
It, it can't spe um, specify which tries and which nots as the statute is now written. Wh whether they do that or not, whether they exercise that power, that would be an, another question. But here they didn't do that. When so you suppose say, they, oh, go ahead. Sorry, when you say you can, they can switch the order, tell me. Uh, under the statute, the Congress has allowed for the Indian tribes to switch uh, non-Indians or Indians the, uh, in 1915, either A2, A1, or A3. They can switch those orders. That's why in Brackeen there was an anti uh, a non-delegation challenge to the statute, because they were saying that by allowing the Indian tribes to manipulate the order, that Congress was effectively delegating that to the tribes. We aren't raising a non-delegation issue here. I thought but, the way the statute worked, and maybe this intersects with what you're saying, but I thought the way the statute works is a tribe has the ability at the end of the day to tell what its preferences are, and those preferences are to be given effect in terms of who gets to adopt children that are either active or prospective members of that tribe. Ultimately, that is correct because the Indian would have the final, uh, the Indian tribe would have the final say uh, in the hierarchy. Right, so, so as to that then, suppose an Indian tribe that has that final say says, what I'd like to have happen is the, the child either be adopted by a member of our tribe or a member of any tribe, or secondarily a member of any tribe over and above the population writ large. If that were to happen, then that tribe's preferences would be given effect. That's correct, again, because that's the tri tribe's sovereign decision as a sovereign to exercise that power. Right, so why doesn't the, the way the proper way to read the statute is that it just sets a default rule that, and a tribe can always turn off that default rule because a tribe can always exercise its sovereign prerogative, as you say, and decide that we're gonna do something different. But all the statute does is it sets a default rule that says, we're just gonna assume that what tribes prefer is to have an adoption from a member of our tribe or secondarily, a member of any tribe as opposed to the population writ large. That's just the default assumption we entrench in the statute. And then if a tribe wants to turn that off, it always can because of its sovereign prerogative. But for now, we'll do that. And if you think it's okay for a tribe to express that preference and have it be given effect, then what's wrong with having a statute that just creates that uh, presumption as a default matter and then leaves it for a tribe to switch it off as opposed to turning it on? Two reasons for that, Your Honor. Number one is because in this default issue, it is Congress doing it and not the tribes itself. And because Congress, through its power, is not immune from equal protection issues, simply setting this default as they have now on its face is an equal protection issue. Because again, Mankari, uh, when it applies here, is talking about what Congress can do when legislating the Indian affairs. And because they can't do that on its face, um, Mankari doesn't apply, and therefore this is strict scrutiny as applied. Secondly, in this particular case, um, we don't have a situation where the Ottawa tribe has made the, um, such a declaration as Your Honor has suggested. And so in that case, the statute is applying facially. And facially, Your Honor, this means that any tribe with no relation to the child's tribe across the country could intervene. Under the, the, the statute's face, if the child was from the northernmost Alaskan tribe recognized by the federal government, an Indian from the Seminole tribe of South Florida could intervene simply because they're Indian. This, Your Honor, is why it's on its face a racial classification. But they have to be a member of a tribe. It's not, not, it's actually not, as I understand it, it's not true they can intervene just because they're Indian. Well, the Seminole tribe is recognized, and also under the statute, um, Alaskan natives who are under a certain, uh, a certain classification can, Your Honor. But what, what, what's wrong with that argument, that the argument that was being put forward by the other side, which is it's not racial because it's both over and under inclusive in that it's actually not defined by a racial categorization of Indian. It's defined by tribal membership, which can be broader or narrower than that. Two reasons, Your Honor. First of all, um, under Rice v. Cayetano, as I mentioned in briefing, 
Um, the court specifically addressed the exact same issue Your Honor was talking about. The government said that the definition of Native Hawaiian was both under and over-inclusive because as an initial matter, it didn't include all the people of the Polynesian descent who would be considered those uh, members of the Kingdom of Hawaii. And also, it would include non-Hawaiians. The government, uh, the, the court specifically rejected this um, distinction and said that just because it was over and under-inclusive did not matter for its analysis. And secondly, Your Honor, when it comes to the issue of what the Indian tribes are defined as, federal regulations out, outside of the specific sui generis Cherokee uh, situation, which comes from an 1866 treaty, have to have some degree of, of ancestry to the native tribes itself. Tribes are not free to uh, allow to open their membership to anyone, regardless of their racial affiliation or ancestry. There must be an ancestral connection back to one of these recognized tribes. And that come, that's come, comes from a statute, or what does that That come comes from? from federal regulations uh, in terms of the ancestry mm -hmm. uh, requirement. And that applies here, except for, again, the Cherokee issue, because the treaty from 1866 um, explicitly commands uh, over that. But does, does Rice really undermine Mankari at the end of the day? Because, I mean, it does note, it, it does seem to reaffirm the holding, and it does take pains to note that it is sui generis. So, I mean, I hear your argument about, about Rice, but I don't know that it, it goes all the way that you need it to. Your Honor, Rice doesn't undermine Mankari. It produces limits. But what Rice does is undermine appellant's suggestion that Mankari is a blanket exception that applies any time a benefit is given to an Indian tribe. Rice is very careful to say that Mankari is a limited exception and that it refused to extend it to a special situation like the state election protocols. Does Rice really support the distinction that you're trying to draw, though, I think, between the subsection that deals only with the particular tribe versus the subsection that deals with any tribe. Does Rice really support that distinction or is it about something bigger, something about fundamental rights? Your Honor, it's about both. That's why in Brackeen, uh, they cited Rice specifically for ringing out uh, individuals from critical state affairs. However, Rice also talks about a situation like in ICWA where you have a uh, tribe, and I I'm gonna um, explain that, Your Honor, because in, in, in Rice, the court was presented with the issue of whether Native Hawaiians actually did receive the same protections as federally recognized tribes as under the statute. Rice didn't decide that issue. It instead assumed they had this federal protection because it avoided the easier question and said that even when you assume that they have the federal tribal status that would cover it under Mankari, that Mankari wouldn't apply. And again, the issue with, with Rice was that it created a classification where non-citizens who would otherwise have a right and a privilege to participate in a process were ring-fenced out because of this tribal classification. Because, as Your Honor was mentioning, they were not Indians. The court held that Mankari does not apply to that situation. And they were very careful to note the difference, again, because the BIA is sui generis in Mankari. The issue there is one of um, of representation in their own affairs. The BIA has a constituent relationship with every single recognized Indian tribe. That means that because the BIA is sui generis and that it has taken over so much of the Indian regulatory process, because so much of the Indian tribes have given up sovereignty to the BIA, it's like the rule that a senator must come from its own state in order to be uh, representative. In Rice, we didn't have that situation because the state of Hawaii, through its process, created a system where all people should have equal standing in that case. Here, there is nothing unique about having non-Indians and Indians 
being designated as separate. Therefore, that's why Rice uh, applies in this case. It also applies independently because of what it says about uh, the applicability of Mankari. So how would you have us write an opinion that, um, that affirms and rules in your favor, given if I read Mankari to say that there's a rule that the Supreme Court has upheld on the basis that a political slash tribal classification rather than a racial one, and it's a rule under which across tribes, Indians were preferred to non-tribal members. So there's a preference for tribal members versus non-tribal members that was upheld by the Supreme Court as not triggering strict scrutiny. This case also involves a preference under A3 for tribal members versus non-tribal members. What's the, what's the decision that we would write that would say, even though that's the dynamic that's being set up, nonetheless, we as a lower court are gonna part ways with Mankari and apply strict scrutiny? Because, Your Honor, you're not parting ways with Mankari. You're simply recognizing Mankari's limited um, approach based on Mankari itself and his progeny. Again, Mankari was focused on that uh, the fundamental tether between the tribes and its constituent agency. Other cases that followed Mankari were similarly limited to the political situation, uh, tribal regulation of Indian lands, and benefits con uh, uh, conveyed on or around reservations. ICWA applies to state courts. It doesn't apply to tribal courts. It's not about tribal jurisdiction like antelope. It's not about treaty relationships like Washington fishermen. It is a completely separate dimension that Mankari never was meant to reach. And as Rice has instructed us, it is a new dimension which we will not apply Mankari's could, limited Could the O'Neills argue to the state um, uh, family court judge that you know, the tribe to which their, um, the, um, the other tribe wants them to go is too attenuated, would not provide, you know, would not essentially be in the child's best interest, and they, as the adoptive parents, would be preferable. Couldn't they argue that still, notwithstanding all of this? Your Honor, that's referencing the good cause provision, and while my opponent was uh, saying things like abuse, bad situations, simply minor differences between tribal culture, it's un uncertain that that would actually be good cause enough for a state judge to override um, ICWA, especially because ICWA is specifically designed to restrain state court jur um, jurisdiction and discretion in these matters. It's unclear if that enough would be a protection against this facially um, unconstitutional statute. And with that, Your Honors, uh, we simply request that you uphold the district court's decision. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. Smith. Okay, Mr. Patton, I think we tried to call you, or I tried to call you too early before. Now it's your turn. Thank you, Your Honor. May I proceed, Your Honor? Please. May it please the court. My name is Michael Patton, and I represent Secretary Holland on the nationwide injunction issue. The District of Lyle's decision to grant a nationwide injunction against a 45-year-old duly enacted statute of Congress defied text, tradition, and precedent. We respectfully request that this court vacate the District of Lyle's sweeping remedy for three particular reasons. First, nationwide injunctions are legally impermissible. Second, nationwide injunctions raise a host of prudential concerns. And finally, in the alternative, a nationwide injunction was inappropriate in this case. I'm not sure I understand the, the notion that they're uh, completely impermissible in light of your acknowledgement that under Rule 23, they can be permissible. Your Honor, there's a difference between Rule 23b2 class actions and nationwide injunctions. And the main difference is that a Rule 23b2 class action requires that all of the absent class members be made parties to the lawsuit prior to the class proceeding in federal court. 
And furthermore, in order for those class members to be made parties to the lawsuit, the district court has to go through a separate analysis under both Rule 23A and Rule 23B2 to certify a civil rights class action, Your Honor. Furthermore, nationwide injunctions are inconsistent with the text of Article 3. So, so just before you go to the text, I'm sorry, just to go back to 23B2 for a second. I guess I'm tempted after you told me what's different about that to ask, so what? I mean, who cares if 23B2 is different in those respects that a district court has to certify a 23B2 class? Still, at the end of the day, what ends up happening is a district judge in a 23B2 case can enter an injunction on behalf of a class that spans the nation. That's correct, Your Honor, but the, the significant difference is that in a Rule 23B2 class action, absent class members can't bring a second lawsuit if a nationwide injunction were to be denied after a Rule 23B2 class action. So how, how can that be? So I know this is getting a little bit far afield, but I have a little bit of a hard time understanding how it can be the case that a B2 class member, an unnamed class member, who says, as I understand B2, you don't even have to have noticed that the class action is going on. That's correct, That's Your Honor. B3 case, you get notice and an opportunity to opt out. In a B2 case, you might not even have notice of a case, so you might not even know the case exists. So you could be part of a class action that you've never even heard of. And the idea that you're part of a class action that you've never even heard of, and that somehow you're barred from bringing another action, that seems like quite a difficult proposition as a matter of due process, that you could be bound by something you'd that you were never even aware of, and if I disagree on that, and I think that non-class, unnamed class members in B2 class actions are not actually bound because for this reason, then is there any meaningful difference between B2 class actions and nationwide injunctions in a case like this? Yes, Your Honor, so a couple of points. First, the Supreme Court recognized in Walmart stores versus Dukes that absent class members in a Rule 23 B2 class action are bound by the ultimate judgment of the court. And more generally, in Phillips Petroleum versus Schutz, that's why the Supreme Court recognized that there are certain requirements that Rule 23 requires courts to engage in before they certify a class action so that basic standards of due process can be upheld. Right, but, but uh, I think that's, that works in B3 classes. And I, I don't remember the particulars of Schutz, you probably do. I thought that might have been a B3 case. Yes, but, Your Honor, that was a B3 right, case. Right, and so there you have a notice and an opportunity to opt out, which seems different to me. In a B2, you don't. And the if, I don't understand how you can be bound by a judgment of which you were never made aware. And if I don't understand that, at that point, I'm not sure I perceive the distinction between 23B2 injunctions and the kind of injunction that's at issue here. Well, Your Honor, I would reemphasize again that in Walmart stores versus Dukes, the, court, the Supreme Court said that absent class members are bound by the judgment. In I don't think that was a holding. Was it, or you tell me. That, that was not the overall holding, yep. it was said in dicta, Your Honor. Right. But Your Honor, even if you were- I had the audacity to deign to maybe question Supreme Court dicta, which I'm not saying I would ever, but <laughs> just in case I had the audacity to do that, where would that leave me, so? Yes, Your Honor, the difference still between a Rule 23 B2 class action and a nationwide injunction, at least as a policy matter, even if the absent class members were allowed to bring suit later on, yep. is that in a Rule 23 B2 class action, there's a certification process that has to happen at the beginning of the lawsuit to determine whether or not that named plaintiff is sufficiently representative of the absent class members. That does not occur in a case involving a nationwide injunction where the plaintiff merely brings their own merits case only related to their individual issue and then asks for nationwide relief to be tacked on at the very end. Who, 
Who, in your view, should the O'Neills have sued? Your Honor, in our view, there were a couple of things that the O'Neills could have done. But perhaps the best thing that the O'Neills could have done would be to wait for a final judgment from Judge Jackson, the Lyle State Family Court judge, before appealing and wait for that final judgment and then appeal Judge Jackson's decision in state court. But Your Honors, if that weren't the case and the O'Neills wanted to bring suit in federal court, they could have had the alternative of asking for a declaratory judgment underneath Section 1983 and Pulliam versus Allen, Your Honor. But Your Honor, going back to right, the- but who, who, against who would that suit have been? Your Honor, that suit could have been against Judge Jackson himself for the declaratory judgment, Your Honor. I've, I found that surprising. Um, I'm, perhaps there, and I didn't have a chance to read that particular case. Is, is there precedent for suing state judges over enforcing particular laws? Yes, Your Honor. In Pulliam versus Allen, the court noted that while judges do have, state judges do have absolute immunity from Section 1983 suits, judges can have prospective relief enforced against them if there's a constitutional violation that is at issue in the case that needs to be remedied. And Your Honor, that's further endorsed by the text of Section 1983 and also- But, but how is that a constitutional violation if the judge is just applying federal law? Your Honor, we don't believe that there's a constitutional violation at issue in this case. But what the O'Neills have alleged is that Section 19, or not Section 1983, what the O'Neills have alleged is that Section 1915A3 is at odds with the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. But you're saying that anytime, anytime a judge, a state judge enforces a federal law that a party disagrees with, that a party thinks is unconstitutional, they could take that judge to court under Section 1983? No, Your Honor. We believe that there are still abstention issues potentially in this case. But what we do know, Your Honor, is that the plaintiffs could have waited for a final judgment from the State of Appeals Court and then appealed that decision in state court. But Your Honors, this goes back to the more fundamental problem in this case. Wait, so just before you go back to the fundamental problem, um, the, on this line of questioning that was raised by my colleagues, so if we were to agree with you, let's suppose we agree with you that it was improper to seek injunctive relief against the secretary. That's, a, that's the gist of what you're saying, right? Yes, Your Honor. But what is that, why is that a basis for drawing a distinction between nationwide injunctions and non-nationwide injunctions? Because that seems like that argument would mean that you couldn't have even a case-specific injunction. Your Honor, the reason why is because even a nationwide injunction against Secretary Holland, the BIA, and the United States government more broadly would do nothing to remedy the plaintiff's claimed injury which is from the decision of Judge Jackson, the Lyle State. But wouldn't that equally be true of a case-specific injunction as to, as to Secretary Holland? I mean, in other words, it seems like the argument you're making proves a lot more than what you seem to be wanting to prove, which is there's something wrong with a nationwide injunction. That argument seems to mean you just can't have an injunction in this case, period, against these defendants, nationwide or not. Even a, That's our position, Even the Your most Honor. singular case-specific injunction at all is out of bounds here. That's our position, Your Honor. But, Your Honor, the fact that they can't request a case-specific injunction just against Secretary Holland also means that they don't have standing to request a nationwide injunction in this case currently. So that is a standing problem rather than a nationwide versus individual injunction problem, right? Yes, Your Honor. So, so you have, it sounds like maybe two arguments. One is there's no standing against these particular defendants. And two, even if there were, you couldn't have a nationwide injunction for various reasons. Is that? Your Honor, our position it? is not that they don't have standing at all to bring suit in federal court. Rather, our position or what we've contested today is that underneath Los Angeles versus Lyons, 
just because even if we assume arguendo that they do have standing to sue in federal court, that doesn't mean that they have standing to request the specific remedy of an injunction against Secretary Holland, the BIA, and the United States government more broadly. So one, one problem I would say that we have is that we can't assume standing arguendo. If we see standing as a problem, then we have to decide that. And if there's no standing, then that's a different argument than, it's a different opinion that we would write than if there's no ability to have a nationwide injunction. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. And if this court was interested in examining whether or not they're standing, especially given that plaintiffs are suing a party that was not adverse to them in Lyle State Family Court in order to try and change what's happening in Lyle State Family Court, we would invite that. But instead, what we're asking related to the nationwide injunction question specifically is that even if plaintiffs had standing otherwise, they wouldn't have standing to request an injunction against Secretary Holland, the BIA, and the United States government. But Your Honors, there are several other, other reasons why a nationwide injunction would be inappropriate in this case. Uh, first of all, a nation, the district court provided no justification regarding why a nationwide injunction was appropriate in this case. And for circuits that have granted nationwide injunctions, they've counseled that district courts must engage in careful consideration of whether a nationwide injunction is necessary to remedy the particular plaintiff's injury that's before the court. And in, in uh, East Bay Sanctuary Covenant versus Barr, the Ninth Circuit actually reversed a lower court's nationwide injunction when in conclusory fashion, the lower court said that, that a nationwide injunction was appropriate merely because the court concluded that district judges have the authority to grant nationwide injunctions in some cases. And that's the same pro uh, problem that the, that the so, so are you saying that if the court had explained its reasoning more fully, then that might justify a nationwide injunction? No, Your Honor. Our position is still that nationwide injunctions are legally impermissible, and I would be happy to discuss that in this case if the court were interested in that. But fundamentally, even if this court were to conclude that nationwide injunctions are appropriate in some cases, a nationwide injunction was not justified here. The entirety of the District of Lyle's analysis about whether a nationwide injunction was appropriate in this case can be seen on page 15 of the record, where it said, quote, here it is appropriate, end quote, in reference to a nationwide injunction. And that level of analysis does not justify the nationwide relief that the District of Lyle granted. Could For that happen in a 23B2 case? No, Your Honors. It couldn't happen in a 23B2 case because there would be, um, in many cases, there are years of litigation prior to the 23B2 class action where the court analyzes whether or not the individual plaintiffs in that case or the class representatives could adequately represent the absent class members in the lawsuit. Furthermore, Do you Your Honors. there's a difference between APA cases and other statutory cases? Your Honor, we don't believe that the APA specifically sanctions nationwide injunctions, even in the set-aside language of Section 706. And as Judge Wilkinson noted in footnote 8 of his majority opinion in Casa de Maryland, the term set-aside in Section 706 doesn't necessarily sanction nationwide relief on the part of district courts. In fact, when the APA was initially passed in 1946, no district court had authorized a nationwide injunction at that time. In fact, the first nationwide injunction was not later until 1963, and it's, it, as Judge Wilkinson noted in Casa de Maryland, it seems odd that Congress would have authorized nationwide injunctive power 
underneath the APA when there had been no precedent for that before. Who is this Judge Wilkinson you're talking about, and what's so great about him? <laughs> <laughs> I clicked for him, so sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Secondly, Your Honors, on the APA point, um, I turn your attention back to the Attorney General's manual on, on the APA from 1947, in which that manual clarified that, that uh, that the set-aside language and actually the scope of, of, uh, of the scope of review provisions in Section 706 were not meant to give federal courts any new power, but instead were meant to affirm the scope of, of review case law that had existed prior to the APA. And it seems odd that, that under those circumstances that Section 706 would somehow authorize nationwide injunctions. Your Honors, because of the fact that the nationwide injunction granted in this case forecloses review on a critical developing question of law and prevents percolation, and because the district court did not justify this nationwide injunction, we respectfully request that this court vacate the district court's remedy. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Patton. Ms. Burke, we'll hear from you now. Your Honors, the appellants today have taken an extreme position that is not commanded by policy, the Constitution, or Supreme Court precedent and in fact is in tension with all three. I would like to begin by discussing the policy concerns that the appellant has brought up in this case before moving on to why a categorical ban on broad injunctions is not appropriate under the Constitution or Supreme Court. Well, from a policy standpoint, I mean, the, the, the injunction here seems to be a remedy looking for a problem. I mean, you, your client needed specific relief related to the child they're trying to adopt, and instead they got this nationwide injunction when there's nothing to suggest that they were going to adopt more children and would need um, the, the scope of this broad injunction. Your Honor, while it is true that injunctions are tailored to provide complete relief to the plaintiff, that's not necessarily a limiting principle. And we can see from the Supreme Court's language in Califano versus Yamasaki that the court also said that the scope of the violation dictates the scope of the relief. And in Trump versus International Refugee Assistance Project, the court noted that crafting a preliminary injunction is an exercise of discretion and judgment, often dependent as much on the equities of a given case as the substance of the legal issue that it presents. But why do you care? Because you're rep you represent the O'Neills, as I understand it. Yes. And I doubt that you've met them, but I, I hear that they're very good people. And so they're, even if you get a narrow form of relief that benefits them, they're gonna get what they want here, which is an equal chance to adopt baby T, is it? Um, yes. As the, the late coming prospective parents. At that point, aren't your clients satisfied? Why, why, are, why are we even talking about doing something beyond that? Yes, because your honor, the equities in this case are very weighty on the side of a nationwide injunction. Now, the appellants haven't talked much about the facts in this case, but while all of this litigation over the constitutionality of Section 1915A3 is ongoing, Baby T is currently in state care with no stable family in limbo. And to have denied a broad injunction in this case means that the district court would be subjecting potentially scores of other Indian children to the same fate of being separated from their family either by death or by removal and then having to wait for months or years while these cases percolate through the courts. That is very obviously a problem, at least arguably, for those particular children. But how is this the type of issue that demands a uniform solution as opposed to a 
particular solution. I think for, for things like pollution rules or water rules, you can see why it wouldn't make sense to have different, say, EPA districts operating with different policies and plans. But for this, when each decision is made for each child, why is a nationwide injunction better on its face than a very specific injunction for these parents and baby T? Well, I, I would begin by agreeing with your honor that nationwide injunctions are fact specific. And as you mentioned, there are cases in which they're clearly necessary. So a categorical ban like the one that appellant has proposed is, is clearly not a good idea. Um, but again, I, I would point back to the equities in this case. This is a case in equity. Um, and the Supreme Court has pointed out before, in a case somewhat similar to this, um, Trump versus International Refugee Assistance Project, that was also a case, it was about the travel ban, in which complete relief to the plaintiffs, for example, the non-enforcement of the travel ban against them in particular, that, that decision would have provided complete relief to them, but it would have done nothing for the situation of thousands of other people um, who were in very time-sensitive scenarios, possibly about to be deported. And multiple district courts um, in that situation thought that the equities weighed heavily in favor so of- So that, that, that kind of dynamic can play out in a lot of different situations. And it presumes that the, the, the claim is a meritorious one. And then maybe some of these problems will arise. But there's an antecedent question about whether it's meritorious to begin with. And it seems a little anomalous to me that you could have a situation in which 35 courts in a row would conclude that a claim is non-meritorious. And then one court comes along and says, you know, all 35 of you are wrong. I think it's meritorious. And not only do I think it's meritorious, but I'm going to enter an injunction that operates even in your district. Yes, Your Honor. And we would not support a situation in which there are inconsistent judgments, and then a district court judge decides to issue a broad injunction anyway. So it's just a race to the, then it's just whoever gets there first? Well, I, I would, I would um, point your honor to the restatement of judgments provision about non-mutual offensive preclusion, which is a somewhat similar legal scenario in that it binds the defendants to people who were not parties in the original litigation and forecloses particular legal claims. And many of the same policy concerns that arise in cases of, of broad injunctions are concerns that arise in those cases as well. And what the court has done, rather than adopting a categorical ban, is adopt a sort of totality of the circumstances analysis in well, which- Well, and, and if we apply that though, what do we do with the lack of explanation or analysis by the trial court judge here? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, we aren't contending that it was necessarily appropriate for the trial court to dispose of the nationwide injunction so quickly. But unlike the Ninth Circuit, we don't think it's necessary for the court to overturn the nationwide injunction simply for that reason. Perhaps in your opinion, if you would uphold the injunction, but simply suggest that future district courts maybe hold an extra hearing or at least engage um, in some specific analysis about why the injunction is appropriate. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be overturned I'm in not, this case. I'm still not sure what happens in the situation in which a court gets a case and other courts have already spoken to it and decided that the claim's non-meritorious. Yes. How would you have that play out? Uh, Your Honor, we would say that they should not, unless perhaps there were extremely compelling circumstances. So I, I don't, I'm not quite sure if, so if, if one court comes along and denies the claim, then every other court then is foreclosed from issuing a nationwide injunction? It, uh, yes, Your Honor. It, it's not that they would be foreclosed from issuing a declaratory judgment in that particular case, 
But like the restatement of judgments in um, non-offensive mutual, uh, non-mutual preclusion cases, uh, the fact of an inconsistent judgment should counsel extremely heavily against issuing a broad But that's because in preclusion situations, you're talking about parties being bound. But in this kind of situation where uh, somebody brings a claim and it's non-meritorious, then I don't think anybody's bound other than the plaintiffs, even, even, even arguably as to them, who brought it, right? So any other plaintiff can bring a claim. And if the first case, if the plaintiffs just do a terrible job, let's say they go pro se, mm-hmm. and, and they're not particularly gifted pro se, that's not to say pro se plaintiffs can never do a great job, they can, but let's just say they do a particularly poor job. And then a second counsel plaintiff brings a claim, and they say, well, I, I don't care what happened in the first case. Like, this is a totally winning argument and I should get nationwide relief, but then it sounds like what you'd say is it's a really severe uphill climb for them to get nationwide relief based on nothing other than the happenstance that somebody happened to get a placeholder complaint in ahead of time. Yes, Your Honor, I, I think it would be a seriously uphill argument, but I would point again to the underlying principle of our position, which is simply that broad injunctions are extremely fact-specific. They should be a totality of the circumstances analysis And in extremely compelling cases, perhaps a a district court, um, for example, the travel ban, where it's extremely time sensitive, there are many thousands of people who are being affected. If the initial case that was brought um, was not successful for reasons other than just its legal merits, perhaps that would be a situation um, in which you could issue an inconsistent judgment. But we certainly would not say that that should be the general rule in so this you're not, case. So you're not arguing for a blanket rule, but an, an almost blanket rule, would you say? Um, in, the cir- in the circumstance of inconsistent judgments, it would be an almost blanket rule. Where does that, where does that leave appellate review? Let's say that we in the 12th Circuit have, um, let's say the First Circuit, in the First Circuit, a district court said no nationwide, inju- or said we have a nationwide injunction. And then a court, a district court in our circuit said the opposite. What are we to do as an appellate court? Are we essentially reviewing the other district court's decision since our district court felt down by it? Or how do we handle that under your rule? I, I don't think you would necessarily be reviewing the other district court's decision, um, but you would still just be reviewing the decision of the district court in your circuit with regard to the merits of the case and perhaps um, if, if the situation were such in which the court felt extremely strongly that that remedy would be appropriate, it could remand for um, the issuance or, or removal of an injunction in a case like that. But to move on can to... Ask, uh, sorry, um, can I ask you to just comment on the argument that's put forward by the, your opponents to the effect that these are just the wrong defendants? Your Honor, I I don't think that's true in this case. It's extremely common for people when they're suing to enjoin the enforcement of a federal law that they would sue in federal court with the defendants who actually enforce or implement that law. And in fact, that's what we actually saw in Brackeen. Um, The defendant was Secretary Holland in that case. And furthermore, it would be unwise for the plaintiffs to have sued the state court judge in this case, because if ever in another jurisdiction they were to try to adopt another Indian child and had the same situation happen to them, the the injunction wouldn't stay. It, it's simply specific to that judge. So, what, what kind of enforcement authority do these defendants have over this statutory scheme? Um, um, secretary Holland, I believe, is the secretary of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, which, although perhaps not having 
um, direct enforcement responsibility over ICWA also helps to um, administer the statutory scheme. And federal courts generally are the ones that are um, enforcing ICWA. So, so is your answer that these defendants do not have any direct enforcement authority over this particular statute? Your Honor, I, I'm not entirely sure um, the, the specific answer, but the way that ICWA works is that when a state court decision is reached, if the judge doesn't, um, doesn't apply ICWA or applies it improperly, then um, the plaintiff can appeal to any court of competent jurisdiction, including a federal court, which would have to apply the law. So I agree that we shouldn't be suing state court judges, um, <laughs> but, but why couldn't you get complete relief from the state appellate court or the state Supreme Court and just make your constitutional arguments to, in that form? Your Honor, we're not contesting that um, the plaintiffs could have done that in this case, but what we're saying is that they didn't do that, and the result that was reached is an appropriate one. Um, so it's possible that they could have pursued a, a more narrow interpretation of the statute, um, but they did not do that, and for reasons that I've explained in terms of the equities, in terms of the fact that many other Indian children might be in similar situations, the result that was reached in this case was an appropriate one. And I'd like to move to um, the appellant's policy concerns about Rule 23 B2 class actions. Um, the concern in this case is, is misplaced, that nationwide injunctions will somehow supplant Rule 23 B2 class actions. Because the mere existence of class action suits does not mean that they're the only means for achieving a broad remedy. And in time-sensitive cases like this one, the procedural requirements attendant on class actions can be extremely detrimental. And furthermore, one requirement of class action certification is that, is that aggregate litigation must pose some sort of benefit over individualized um, litigation in those cases. And this is a case of a facial challenge to a statute which means that the result of an individual case is going to be the same result as would be reached in a class action case. The statute is either unconstitutional as applied to everyone, or it's not. So the appellant's concerns about, about 23B2 class actions here are misplaced. And I would like to end by discussing um, the Supreme Court and some recent precedent that suggests that these broad injunctions are indeed appropriate and can be used in situations like the one we're facing today. Just last year, the court decided Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants, a case that the appellants have cited in their brief as support for the idea that judges cannot invalidate facially unconstitutional laws. But the court actually decided the opposite in that case and severed an unconstitutional provision from the rest of the act. In support of its holding, the court quoted Chief Justice Marshall's decision in Marbury versus Madison that if any part of an act is unconstitutional, the provisions of that part may be disregarded while full effect will be given to such as are not repugnant to the Constitution of the United States. Your Honors, in summary, recent Supreme Court precedent, policy concerns, history, they all suggest that nationwide injunctions not only should not be categorically banned, but that one was actually appropriate in this case. And therefore, the appellees respectfully ask the 12th Circuit to uphold the nationwide injunction 
against Section 1915A3 in this case. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Burke. Um, appellants will give you your rebuttal time. Mr. Baldaji. May it please the court. Two brief points of rebuttal. First, appellees, in order to avoid the regime of Mankari, I've argued that it is limited to cases, in their words, dealing with tribal self-government or tribal sovereignty. But this court can't accept an argument that the Supreme Court has already explicitly rejected. In US versus Antelope, the Supreme Court said that this case, Antelope, does not deal, like Mankari, with either tribal sovereignty or self-government as such. In fact, that case dealt with the application of criminal statutes to Indian defendants. And they said, nevertheless, regulation of federal affairs is subject to rational basis review. Rice does nothing to change that outcome, as the, the holding of Mankari, as expressed in Rice, was that classifications based on tribal status are subject to rational basis review. That squarely resolves the constitutional issue in, in this, before this court today. And then second, with regard to the nationwide injunction, the appellees cite a number of needs for uniformity or for the holding of a court to hold across multiple cases. But they cite a number of Supreme Court precedents to support that. But our system is designed for the Supreme Court to provide uniformity of the law after percolation and collegial deliberation. Nationwide injunctions invert that pyramid. We're not arguing against what they call broad injunctions or the flexibility of equity. What we are saying is that Article III does not vest supreme and national judicial power in each and every one of the inferior federal courts. Your Honors, at stake in this case is nothing less than the corpus of federal Indian law. If the federal government is going to be able to effectuate its moral and legal obligations to ensure the welfare of the Indian tribes, it has to be able to make distinctions between Indians and non-Indians. We ask this court to side with decades of deference to Congress's judgments and policy goals in the area of Indian affairs, and it's why we ask for reversal and vacator. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to all counsel. We'll take this case under submission. I don't think you have to stand up when we're not wearing robes, but anyway. <laughs> All right, so um, pleasure to be back, and I think what we'll do is we'll give a little bit of reactions um, slash feedback on what we saw today, and, and then we'll announce um, the result. And I'll just start out by saying on behalf of both of my colleagues, congratulations to all of you. I know this, having been through Mid Court before, I think I was law school, that was about two or three years ago. Um, it can be nerve-wracking, and you all acquitted yourself so well, and uh, you, you should be really, really proud of yourselves and, and to the school for putting on uh, an exemplary competition. Um, it, was, it was a pleasure to be part of. Um, and let's give some reactions, if we would, and sure. we'll start with Judge Bergeron. Uh, yeah, I echo that, and I think uh, everybody did a fantastic job. I also do want to acknowledge how difficult it is to argue in mask, and I think you all handled that very well. Uh, we had a brief period where we had arguments in mask, and the attorneys were forever fumbling with them and, and like sweating profusely and all that, <laughs> so you guys did great. Um, I thought that the advocacy, both the written and oral, was excellent. Um, I would love for you all to come practice before my court as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. And I thought the, it, it, was, it was really a difficult call for me in terms of which side was better 
because I thought that both on the, the writing and in the oral advocacy, um, I saw a lot that I liked uh, from everybody. The briefs were great. They're very well written. Um, I thought the legal analysis was right where it needed to be, um, hit all the important points. And I thought was, you know, they were speaking to each other too, which is an important thing. Sometimes you see ships passing the night. I don't, that wasn't what I saw in these briefs. On the argument, um, I, I, again, very good, very polished arguments. Um, the one thing that a, a couple of you did was you started responses to questions by saying there's two points. I kind of like that because like if you're responding to one of my colleagues' questions, I feel like I need to let you go mm -hmm. to, to respond to both those points because I feel like I'm interrupting that judge by interrupting you if you're not done. So it, it bought you a little time and that's always a good thing if you're the advocate trying to get the answers in. Sometimes we got pretty hot on the bench and that can be a challenge as an advocate. I remember one argument, um, where actually Amul was on, where I was the advocate and they were asking me so many questions I never had a chance to really answer and then they were getting frustrated that I wasn't answering. I'm like, it's your fault. Um, <laughs> but but you, all, you all handled that well. I think the one kind of other constructive point I would make is that sometimes when, you're, when we are kind of being really aggressive and hitting you on your weak points, you have to know what the fail safe is. You have to know how far you can get pushed and where you have to draw the line in the sand and say, this is, here's my theory of the case, I'm not gonna go beyond this point. So understanding where that is is critically important in, in oral advocacy because a lot of people that I see don't necessarily think about that and that's where they get into trouble when they get hypotheticals. So, but I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity to come here. I'll echo what both of my colleagues said. Really nice job from all four of you. I think it can be hard to have a conversational tone with judges while still making our points with authority. And I thought that all four of you did a nice job of that. Um, it's important to make sure, and I think it can be a challenge, to make sure that you look at all three of the judges while you're talking. Um, it can be very easy to center in on whoever's in the middle. And I think especially if you're ever fortunate enough to be arguing at a, you know, an en banc court or a, the Supreme Court, make sure that you know that all of the judges know that you're there and that you're looking at them. And you'll sometimes kind of see a cocktail and you can pick up on things that you may want to drill down on with a particular judge. Um, I agree at the point of making sure that you know your failsafe. Yes, that would be true there, but this is different for, for these reasons. Um, and I think, I think mostly that was done effectively today, but I think it's a really important thing to think through. I think some parts of the problem, I think were pretty challenging. Um, these are really tough, interesting issues and kudos though to whoever wrote the problem, um, because I think these are great issues that are, that are really interesting for us even to research and look into. Um, and you all did a nice job of fleshing out a lot of the, a lot of the complicated doctrines that were at play. So really well done. Yeah, the, I guess the Fifth Circuit spent 300 some odd pages going through some of these issues. So they're <laughs> very engaging in, in a lot of ways. And so I don't know, with the COVID uh, situation, are, are families and parents here to watch the, the <laughs> contestants? So, I mean, I'm sure you all are incredibly proud of everybody you came to watch. You guys should be extraordinarily proud of yourselves. Uh, this is not an easy thing to pull off and it's a grueling 
um, marathon to go through all the rounds and get to this stage. So, I mean, just extend the warmest kudos to you all for weathering this and performing as well as you did. I think a lot of times it's tempting to think about oral argument as some stylized enterprise that's often its own unique corner and we're trying to figure out, you know, how are you an effective oral advocate in this enterprise of appellate arguments? And one thought that I've always had in my mind is, I think that's a little bit wrong to think about appellate advocacy as some discrete enterprise that has its own skill set. We talk to each other all the time in all kinds of settings and the very same things that make us like to talk to certain people are what make us like to listen to certain people argue. It's all the same stuff. I mean, are they engaging? Are they articulate? Do, am I, are they compelling in some way? Are they letting me talk and not interrupting me? You know, do they crack a smile every now and then? Are they pleasant? I mean, that's all the kind of, you know, are they conversational, as, as, as Britt said? I mean, they're all the kinds of things that make, just make us want to listen to somebody. And if you're nodding your head in affirmation at someone when you're having an everyday conversation with them, then that's probably the same sort of stuff that's going to make your nod and head in affirmation when you're judging and they're advocating. And all of you kind of elicited that response, I think, in all of us. And I, I know that when I went through mid-court, I was nervous as all get out. And none of you betrayed nerves. That's really kind of amazing. Um, in this kind of setting, with all these people here and the lights on, and this is the finals, and you know, you're appearing before three people wearing uh, three people who are wearing robes, and it's just I did not detect an iota of nervousness on the part of any of you. So kudos to you on that score, on that score too. I mean, one obvious point about oral advocacy, when the, in the times that I've you know talked about it, um, is it's very very tempting to try to avoid questions. And if you've got a weak spot, it's very, very tempting to try to elide it and slide over to something. Well, that's not our case. Or, and I've always thought the best way to answer any question is yes, but, no, because. That's mm -hmm. like a mnemonic I've always had in my mind because almost every time a judge asks you a question, if the answer is yes, they're gonna be like, really? And so you're gonna follow up with, but don't worry about <laughs> that. Or they're gonna think the answer is gonna be yes and you say no and they're thinking what? And then you say that's because the following. And you all kind of basically have that formula in your mind because I never thought in answer to any of our questions that we got the Heisman. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't think. I think we got direct engagement and responsiveness, which is absolutely um, where each of you want to be. And the flip side of it is you want to be direct and responsive, but you also don't want to be, um, uh, I think, unattractively aggressive. Because I think one pitfall that a lot of advocates run into is they give the sensation that there's not anything even remotely debatable about their position. <laughs> and that's obviously not true about the issues today. They're very, very debatable. And I thought you all were kind of measured in a way that inspired confidence. Because if you seem unmeasured, then I think judges tend to get skeptical. And they think, no, you're not that right. I mean, you might be right, but you're not that right. And I thought all of you kind of did a good job of acknowledging the possibility that there were some difficult propositions that you were going to have to contend with, but then not bowing down to it and thinking that you didn't have an answer at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So all in all, you do, I thought everybody did everything that really good advocates do. And so you're all off to great starts to your careers, and we'll look forward to seeing you in uh, a real courtroom in front of us one of, these one of these days, hopefully soon enough. If I may add, um, it seems like everyone has likely done a lot of moots before this moot and let me encourage you all to keep doing that as you go into your practice because I know in my history as an advocate you can tell a dramatic difference from the first time you do a moot 
to the second to sometimes the third, and you should hear every hard question before you get to the courtroom and already know the answer to it. So you've done a great job here. Just let me encourage you to keep that up and never think that you're too good or too experienced for a moot because you never will be. None of us are. Absolutely true, no question. Um, okay, then we, we also have the unenviable task of announcing um, by UVA standards the, the team that wins. And I will say that we had a very healthy debate and there were points made um, in favor of both sides. And so everybody should be very, very proud of the way you performed both in the briefing and in the argument. Because um, across the board, I think we found the arguments really, really well constructed. But at the end of the day, on, on balance, we chose the appellants as the prevailing team. So congratulations um, to you both and congratulations to FLEs for, for presenting, representing yourselves so well. And lastly, I think you guys, um, you, you folks, will all join us in thanking the people who put together the Moot Court um, for the really nice job that they've done in, in uh, orchestrating an enterprise that's not always that easy to manage, given all the rounds that you've had to go through and everything, and to the school for um, putting on such a nice occasion for all, of us, uh, for all of us to participate in. So thank you so much to everybody. Congratulations to all the contestants.